Would you find Titus chapter 1, and we'll begin this series tonight, Lessons from a Pastor's How-To Manual. Um, Titus is one of four books that Paul wrote to individuals. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were all written to individuals. The rest were written uh, to churches or to a group of Christians at large. And this is the third and last of three pastoral epistles. Uh, Timothy and Titus were young men in the ministry that Paul had trained. And you have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, chronologically, 2 Timothy being the last book of the Bible that Paul wrote before he was martyred. But then you have this little, this little three-chapter book of, of Titus. And I put Dr. Ironside's quote on your worksheet H.A. Ironside said that the main difference between the letters to Timothy and Titus is their emphasis. In Timothy, you have the focus of sound doctrine, and in Titus, you have the focus of sound behavior. And as we make our way through these chapters, you'll, you'll hear uh, Paul's words to, or you'll read Paul's words to Titus, and he's talking again and again and again about the behavior of the Christian. And what it is good for, what it can prevent. And so we're going to look at that. that. That idea of behavior is emphasized in the very last phrase of verse number one. Acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. After godliness. We're going to look at the truth of God's word as it pertains to a godly lifestyle. And so we'll, um, tonight I entitled this Meet the Author. Next week very creatively, meet the reader. Uh, Titus was the reader. It's not you and me. It's Titus that this was written to. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 tonight and reintroduce ourselves to the Apostle Paul because he says some things in these opening verses that are good for every, every one of us. There was a man by the name of uh, Frederick Ferrer, and he wrote a book entitled The Life and Work of St. Paul. And he tries to draw the picture because sometimes I, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not seeking to put Paul on a pedestal tonight. But I think it's important that you and I understand what is possible in a man or a woman who is surrendered to the Holy Spirit the way Paul was. Paul's not a super Christian. He is a surrendered Christian. And his impact, and, and humanly speaking, this is the truth, humanly speaking... This church, this Gentile church, is in America because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the very first century. He had an impactful ministry, not just in his world, but in the world, uh, in the world that was going to be centuries later. And here we are. This is what Frederick Ferris said about Paul. In truth, it is hardly possible to exaggerate the extent, the permanence, the vast importance of those services that were rendered to Christianity by Paul. That's a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of weight right there. It's hardly possible to exaggerate the extent, the permanence, and the vast importance of those services which were rendered to Christianity by Paul. Paul has left his stamp on Christianity, not because Paul was a great man, because he was fully surrendered to his great Savior. And here we are. I, I am looking forward to meeting uh, Paul. He lived 2,000 years ago. And yet what he's done has impacted and shaped much, if not all, of the Gentile world. Because you remember God called Peter to be an apostle to the Jews, Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. Um, I believe he also is the author, the unnamed author, author of the book of Hebrews. But he wrote at least 13 books in the New Testament, and he gave us, he gave us these, uh, these books. Each of them have a different slant for Christianity. Each of them have a different emphasis. God used holy man. Now, the scriptures were absolutely inspired. And I don't know how God does this. I don't fully understand inspiration. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired every word of the scriptures. And yet, 
he was able to capture the personality of the human author that he used. So when you read the book of, for example, when you read the book of uh, James, it has a very different tenor to it than the book of Romans. Romans is written by an academic. Romans is written by a theologian named Paul. James is written by a guy who, when Jesus met him, may not have even been able to read. But both of those books are equally inspired. Well, Paul comes to this, this book, this little book of Titus, and he is writing to his young friend, his, his, this young man that uh, he... Uh, that he raised up in the Lord. We'll see that later. But it's Paul that wrote this book. We're going to focus on this reader tonight. Uh, Clarence, Clarence McCartney wrote a book, The Greatest Men of the Bible. And in that book, he said, Paul is great however you take him. He's great as a thinker. He's great as a preacher. He's great as a friend. Great as a builder and planter of churches. He's great as a sufferer. And he is great, and I love this, he is great in his world-embracing love. That's a, that's a wonderful testimony, isn't it? His world-embracing love. That sounds a lot like God to me. God so loved the world. And the Apostle Paul had that love for the lost of the world. Even to the point where he said, I would give up my, he, I would give up my eternal security if I thought it would bring my, my brothers to Christ. Paul's an amazing man. So we're going to look at these, these opening verses, and I hope what I do tonight is I hope I show you the secret to Paul's great impact. Because as I said a moment ago, he's not a super Christian. He's just one who said, God, you can have all of me. All of me. These people over here stoned me and left me for dead outside the city. He gets up, wipes the blood off of his body and out of his eyes and walks right back into that city to continue sharing the gospel. Here's a man who left nothing, he left nothing on the field when it came for, for Christ. He just surrendered what he did and God did great things through him. So I'd like to look at three things tonight uh, about Paul. And I want, you, I want you to learn from Paul tonight because he is our example uh, he is a good example for us to follow. Let's first of all talk about Paul and his master. Paul and his master. Let's read the first three verses because that's, that's going to be our study tonight. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, accord those two things are not the same. So Paul makes a distinction, a servant and an apostle. According to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Here's Paul, he's introducing himself, and the first thing I'd like you to see tonight is that Paul introduces himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's this twofold relationship that he has with, with God that, that describes how God uses him. Servant and apostle. Let's look at two things. We'll look at both of those things. Here's the first one. The authority that he acknowledged in that phrase, a servant of God. The authority that he acknowledged. You know, we've talked about this before, that the word that Paul chooses to use here as servant is the same word as slave. He's acknowledging that he is a slave of God. The master in Paul's life, the one who was in charge of everything about Paul, the one who was in charge was God himself. Any topic you wanted to discuss with Paul about his life was filtered through God's leadership. God was his master. It's not just that he was, it's not God was his employer. I mean, when you clock out, you clock out. You're done. God, Paul never clocked out. You see, a slave doesn't have a nine to five job. A slave is a slave 24 seven. And God was his master. Uh, he'd been brought, scripture says, he was bought with a price. Uh, you know, one of the darkest times, one of the most tragic times in our nation's history 
is the years when slavery was legalized here. Um, It's a a dark chapter in our history. It's not one to be erased. I think we got to be careful about erasing history. Um, If that were the case, you'd never know about David's sin with Bathsheba. You'd never know about Jacob's or Abraham's or Moses' sin. You wouldn't know about Peter's denial. It's not good to erase the sin, but it's good to learn from it. Someone estimated there were 650,000 slaves imported to the United States against their will. They were brought here and enslaved for labor, and they served masters, not employers. That eventually became the catalyst for the Civil War, and it was just a dark time. It's a regretful time in our country or any country that endorses slavery. That's a regretful time. But there is a form of slavery that is commendable and encouraged, and that is mine and yours, our full surrender to God as his servant. I find it interesting that Paul's first introduction is saying this, Paul, a slave of God, just the first thing he wants us to know out there. And and this is the truth. Apart from the day you got saved, it might be the most valuable the second most valuable day in your Christian life when you fully surrender everything about you to God. That might be the second best day in your Christian life when you learn everything about me belongs to him and then you surrender it. Now the truth is this, if you've been attending this church for any length of time, you already know that everything about you belongs to God. It's just have you walked in obedience and if I've walked in obedience to that. Adrian Rogers, I think I shared this with you recently, Adrian Rogers said most Christians are educated well beyond their obedience. We know what's right, we just don't do it. Paul was one who was just fully surrendered to God and calling God, in effect calling God his, his master. Thomas came to this place. Remember, we call him Doubting Thomas. That's a bum rap for that guy because he asked the same. He asked questions I know I would have asked if I were standing where he was. We call him Doubting Thomas. But you know, he came to a place where he fell down at the feet of Jesus and all he could say was, my Lord and my God. That was the whole sentence. It was an absolute and abject surrender to the one who deserved his surrender. Paul, uh, Paul had found his master here, and this, he, he, he sees the authority, the authority in God. So he says, I'm a servant of God. I want to remind you what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20. Verse 19 says, you're not your own. And then it says in verse 20, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus purchased you with his blood, and he is, for lack of a better term, you may not like this. There are are a lot of young Christians today uh, and old Christians. They don't like this, but it's the truth. He is your owner. He owns you by right of creation, and he owns you by right of redemption. And what we ought to do is surrender to him. When it came to his master, Paul, Paul, first of all, acknowledged the authority. Second... Not only the the authority that he acknowledged, the second thing is the assignment that he accepted. He was not only a servant of God, but he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this was an assignment that he accepted. You know that that word apostle means sent one. He saw himself as a delegate or an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He had been sent to the Gentile world. Now, having been sent to the Gentiles did not mean that he didn't witness to Jews. You and I both know uh, what, what some old preacher said, he said anytime Paul went into a city for the first time, he had two stops initially. One was the synagogue and one was the jail because he was going to go to the first one first and he was going to be dragged to the second one second. Paul loved to talk to the Jews. He wanted to see them saved. But Paul's primary ministry was an apostle, a sent one to the Gentiles. Being a, being a servant shows Paul's submission, but being an apostle shows his service to God. 
And this was the assignment that he had. Now, God didn't call you to be an apostle. Had he called you to be an apostle, you would have been born about 2,000 years ago. There are no apostles today in the New Testament office. Um, we all have different assignments from God. Paul's assignment was to be an apostle. The role of the New Testament apostle was limited to 13 men. They had limited responsibilities that, that the rest of us, or I should say restricted responsibilities and, and abilities that we don't have today. But as far as being sent, in that light, all of us are sent ones. We're all told to go into the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Our part of the world is this, is America. This is where we preach. We send missionaries to go to other parts of the world. But we are all sent ones who are told, to, uh, told by God to go into the world, be, be ambassadors. We are ambassadors. Remember what Paul said? Now then we, us, we are ambassadors for Christ. So Paul was a designated apostle, but we can, take, we can do the work of the apostle in that we take the gospel to the world. So like Paul, we have to do two things. We need to acknowledge the authority of God and say, I am a servant, I am a slave of God. And second, I will be a sent one, and I will tell people around me, I will tell them about this. So he acknowledged his authority, he accepted his assignment, that's Paul and his master. The first thing he wants Titus to know is this, is this is me and God. The second thing is Paul and his ministry. Paul and his ministry. This picks up in the middle of verse number one. Where Paul says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after, which is after uh, godliness. He declares who he is, I'm a servant and I'm an apostle, and now he talks about what he is given to do. Paul said there is a ministry that he has, and you see who his ministry is to here. His ministry is to God's elect. <coughs> Excuse me, all of those who have been chosen by God, who are saved, and you're getting now, with those, with those few words, you get into a very hotly contested doctrine when it comes to the doctrine of election. There are good men on both sides of this, on both sides of this argument. Uh, I read both men. I had a text come today and asking me about uh, one, of the, one of the guys that I quote often who is reformed in his theology. He's a Calvinist. Um, and I, I said, look, I, I read guys on both sides of this argument. I don't agree. There are very few authors. I, I don't know of any, I guess, that I would totally agree with 100% other than the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't. But this is a hotly contested, this is a hotly contested doctrine here. This is what Dr. Phillips said about this verse, about this phrase, the elect. Dr. Phillips said, truth concerning election is both complex and controversial. Some people envision God's contemplating Adam's ruined race and choosing some to be saved and consigning all others to a lost eternity. May I borrow something that I said to you when we were making our way through uh, the book of Ephesians? And this is a good reminder because you may come across someone who has a different view than you do on the doctrine of election. It doesn't mean they're the enemy. You're brothers and sisters in Christ and you're going to spend eternity together. So don't tick them off because they might be your neighbor in heaven and you tick them off. They'll play their music too loud and you'll have to deal with that for all eternity. Wouldn't that be terrible? I reminded you that in, in, when we were in Ephesians... Uh, chapter 1, this was the statement I made. It's on your worksheet. The mystery of, in the doctrine of election is wrapped up in the fact that we are finite, God is infinite. We are finite, God is infinite. John Stott in one of his books said, Now everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. Didn't I choose God, somebody asks indignantly, to which we must answer yes. Indeed you did, and freely, but because God in eternity chose you first. Didn't I decide for Christ, asks someone else, to which we must reply yes. Indeed you did, and freely, but because God first decided for you. And here's what Stott says, I like this. 
it is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christianity for centuries. I do not fall into that category, so I'm going to be content to say when we get to heaven, God's going to explain everything to us. That's just how it's going to be. I love what Spurgeon said about the doctrine of election. He said, when we come to the gates of heaven, we will approach the, we will approach the gates and they, they will say, whosoever will may come. And as we pass through the gates and we look back on the inside, we'll look up to see chosen before the foundation of the world began. If that's how God chooses to do it, then that's how God chooses to do it. You know what? I'm the elect. You know how I know? Because I'm saved. That's how it works. You and I don't know who the elect are. We don't know who's going to be saved. God does. So tell people about Jesus. That's the truth. God's infinite. We aren't. God is God. We aren't. Paul said, I'm going to take the gospel to the elect. Did he know who they were? Nope. Didn't have a clue. So Paul would talk to a Roman soldier. Or he'd talk to a Philippian jailer. Or he'd talk to a seller of purple. Or he'd talk to a demon-possessed girl. Paul told everyone he could about Christ. This was Paul. We're just going to talk to, we're just going to tell everybody. And his ministry to the elect, he had some, he had some goals. When he's talking to Christians, when he's talking to, to those who are saved, there were some goals that he wanted to see in them. I put down three objectives that he had in his ministry. First of all, he wanted to see these believers, these Christians, he wanted to see them brought to a life of maturity. A life of maturity. It says there in verse number one, according to the faith, mark that word, the faith of God's elect. So he wants to bring those who have come into the faith, he wants to bring them to a life of maturity. That faith, we know this, because the, the scripture later is going to say, add to your faith, and then it's going to give us a list of things, because our faith is intended to grow. It's intended to mature and develop, and this was Paul's first goal. His first goal was to develop or grow the faith of the believers and bring them to a life of spiritual maturity. We won't turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now look, we're, we're, we understand this. If there's a newborn baby born into our family, and that baby doesn't grow, if that baby's six or seven months old and it weighs about a pound more than it did when it was born, we know there's a, there's a significant physical problem with this child. Why? Because babies ought to grow. They ought to gain weight, and they ought to get longer. Now, some get longer than others, and we won't talk about the weight side of it. We'll just say that some get longer, right, than, than others. If there's no growth for a newborn baby over time, then there's reason, Mom, for you to be concerned. There's reason, Dad, for you to be concerned about that, and that's the same thing with a Christian. If a Christian does not desire spiritual growth. If a Christian is not growing, there is something wrong. You ought to be far more mature today in Christ than you were a year or two ago. Your understanding of the word should be better. My understanding of the word should be better than it was a year ago. We ought to be growing in our, our faith. What's true physically is true spiritually. Growth for the newborn. You know, our brother Jim Whip went to heaven here a few months ago. Jim was saved a little over three years before he died. And he came to Christ as an older man. And uh, Jim, was, Jim was a saved truck driver. He was a truck driver, and he had a truck driver's tongue when we first met him. And over, over those three or three and a half years, Jim couldn't see it. I would talk with Jim, Brother Terry would talk with Jim sometimes, and, and he'd just cry and say, I'm just not getting it. But anybody who knew Jim when he first got saved and came to this church, and you spent any time with him three and a half years later when he died, you saw the grace of God in him. I just kept telling him, I say, I'd say, Brother Jim, just keep reading the scriptures. They're doing their work in you. I just don't get it. I think I told you before, Jim would... 
Jim would uh, come and see me about every four months, about every three or four months. As he's reading his Bible, didn't matter where he was reading, he kept a notebook there, and he'd just write down whatever question he came across. And after about three or four months, he'd have about 15 or so questions, and he'd call and make an appointment with Sheila, and he'd bring that notebook up here, and we'd go back in the office and just make our way down that list. And they would be questions of all shapes and sizes. But you know what his questions even changed over those three years? I, I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or you've been saved for 50, 50 years. You and I should be growing in Christ like that. We may not see it, but I promise you others do. I love that verse that says when Barnabas came to this one, this one town and he was, he was meeting with the church, it said that Barnabas rejoiced to see the grace of God. Where did he see the grace of God? He saw it in the believers there. And you and I ought to be demonstrating this growing faith. We ought to demonstrate the grace, the grace of God. So the first thing Paul's trying to build is a life of maturity in believers. Second thing, a life of purity. That's the last phrase there of verse number one, where it says, acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, spiritual growth ought to result in a godly life. My understanding of the scriptures should change the way I live. It should change my personality. It should change who I am. I, I, if I show up at a class reunion from William Blunt High School, they ought to not hardly recognize me, not simply because of my age, but they ought to not recognize the person that Christ is making of me. If I talked one way when I was in high school, I ought to show up completely different at a class reunion, and it, it might shock some people. If I had a rough, gruff personality or a, a, an argumentative personality in high school, when I go back to that high school reunion, there ought to be such a difference in me. They're like, well, that, that guy had something happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Spiritual growth should result in a godly lifestyle. We, we should reflect. A godly life is one reflecting uh, the one to whom we belong. A godly life reflects the one to whom we belong. I mentioned that in, in 1 Corinthians 6. We belong to God. So our life ought to be godly. We ought to have the stamp of our Father on us. So how do we become godly? He says it in verse number one. How do we get to which is after godliness? What precedes the phrase which is after godliness? Acknowledging the truth. You know how you and I become godly? We get into the word and let the word change us. The, I love that phrase, the acknowledging of the truth. We pick out the scripture and we say, this is the word of God. You know what I'm finding in, in discussions with people today? And especially, and I'm not picking on young people. I'm just saying my conversations with 20 and 30-somethings recently, they have, they have taken the, the position where they get to determine the importance of the Word of God in their lives. They have taken the position that they get to critique the New Testament church and its validity. So they don't go. I want to caution you, church, about letting God's word be the authority, the acknowledging of the truth, recognizing this is the standard. Our spiritual growth involves a continuous growing knowledge of the word of God all the time. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That, that passage, that's Psalm 119.11, just two verses before that, it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my, whole, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy precepts. Keeps coming back to the word of God. You want a godly life? Attach yourself to the scriptures. Studying books about the Bible is not studying the Bible. Don't make that sorry substitute. I'm, a, I'm for books. I've, I've got books. In fact, let me, can I throw this out there? I was supposed to announce this earlier. Somebody left a bag of books in the church office the other day 
no name or anything. If you did that, would you let Sheila know what those books are for? Um, I'm for them. I've got a couple of the books that are in that bag, so, but if nobody claims those books, Mark's library is about to grow by eight books. Um, I'm for books, but I am, I am adamantly against studying books about the Bible more than I study the Bible. And we might justify that and say, well, but I'm using this, I'm using this book to help me understand this. Why don't you and I rely on the Holy Spirit to do that? The Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, delights to open up your understanding. Jesus said this, when he comes, when the comforter comes, he says, he's going to be your guide and do all truth. The Holy Spirit wants you to come to him for understanding. I'm all for commentaries. I use them. I used them to, to get into this Bible study night. I'm not against books, but I'm afraid I really am afraid that as Christians, we have substituted our time in the word for books about the word. Be careful about that. Your time in the Bible should outweigh your time in books about the Bible. Acknowledging of the truth. So Paul sought to build these, these Christians up with a life of maturity, a life of purity. And in verse number two, he wanted to see in believers a life of certainty. I love verse number two. In fact, um, that verse, Titus 1-2, is uh, engraved on a bench at my, my, the Bible college I went to. One of the classes had a, a concrete bench made, and they had somebody carve uh, Titus 1-2 into that bench. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Paul wanted to build into them a life of certainty. Christian, you ought to be certain about your salvation. I think one of the most miserable people in the world is probably the Christian who's wondering whether or not he's saved. Wondering whether or not she's saved. That would be terrible to go to bed each night and not sure you're saved. But you don't have to be. Scripture says here, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, Paul wanted to build a certainty into Christians. And don't mistake that word hope. You and I use that word hope today completely different than they do. We use it as a wish for. In this, in this uh, context, that word is talking about something that is anticipating and expecting something to happen in the future. It's an expectation. It's an anticipation. Have you ever, um, I'm trying to think what I could use here. All right, the Super Bowl is coming up soon. Now, if you're an NFL fan, I'm not. If you're an NFL fan, this is a big game coming up for you. You can feel the excitement. When they're leading up to that opening kickoff, you're like, well, it's going to be a good game. It's not going to be because of who's playing. But you can, you can get there and, and you see everything uh, you see everything lined up. All the players are lined up on opposite sides. Thousands of people are there. Millions of dollars in promotion has been spent on this thing. It's, it's incredible. And the anticipation is coming, it's coming for something you know is about to happen. You know when that place kicker, when he drops his hand, when he does this, you know this game's about to kick off. You're not, you don't have to wish. If you're sitting in the stand, where are they playing that? Are they playing that in Vegas this year? All right. You're sitting there in the stadium in Vegas. And you've traveled from East Tennessee all the way to Vegas to see this game. You're not wishing the Super Bowl's about to start. You know it's going to start, right? You're anticipating something that you know is about to happen. That's what's being described in Titus 1-2, but on a far greater scale. We know that we have eternal life because God promised it and can't lie. It's not a wishing thing. It is an absolute sure, and Paul wants to see that built into them. John did too. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You can be absolutely sure about it. Paul wants to build into these Christians that he's got this ministry for, a life of maturity, he wants them to grow in Christ. A life of purity, he wants to see godliness in them. And he wants them to know for sure that they're saved. 
Nothing's going to change this. It doesn't say in verse number two that God will not lie, does it? If your Bible does, you ought to throw it out. It says, God that cannot lie. If someone ever tells you that there's nothing God can't do, they're making a false and misinformed statement. God cannot lie. In Hebrews, it, goes, it, it says it another way. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. Why is that important? Because he's the one promising eternal life. He can't lie. It's impossible. It's a life of certainty. Our eternal security, thank the Lord, does not depend on us. I am so glad I'm not a member of the church of Christ. Be saved one day, be lost the next. Get saved, lose it again. I'm so glad. I am so glad that I know my eternal security is a promise from a God that cannot lie. Christian, don't struggle with your assurance of salvation. You don't have to live like that. You can know absolutely sure. So there's Paul and his master. And he says, this master, my relationship with him involves me as a servant, as a slave, and as an apostle. And there's his, then there's his ministry. And his ministry is to do things to, to help these Christians grow in Christ and live a godly life and be certain. And then finally, there's Paul and his message. And that's in verse number three. And his message was simple. He was going to communicate the truth leading believers to those lives that we just talked about, mature, pure, and certain lives. He was going to preach it. He was going to do that by the preaching of the word. Look at verse number three. But hath in due times, still talking about God, God hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which was committed or which is committed unto me according to the commandment, of God our Savior. Paul speaks of, of God's word in two lights here. The first thing he says is that this is a message revealed. He said is manifested. It's a revealed message. In due time, in, in proper times, God manifested his word. The word manifested means this. It is something that was hidden but is now revealed. It's been unveiled. God has revealed his word. Uh, he's, he's revealed his word to us. His, literally, that word word is book. It's the word biblios. It's, his, it's the book. Now, it's, not just, it's not obviously just any book. Is your Bible like mine? It says right on the front, Holy Bible. That's a good description of this book. It sets it apart from every other book in the world. God has revealed his word. He has manifested his word. This is a Holy Bible. This is the very word of God, and it's been given to us. It's been revealed. This is how God makes himself known to us in, in his person. It reveals for us several things. I don't think I left this on your worksheet, but it reveals God's will. It reveals his gospel. It reveals the doctrine that sets us apart from false teachers. It reveals where we came from. It reveals where we are going. In fact... It is what God wants us to know before we meet him face to face. I think one of the glories of heaven, one of the great things about heaven, is we're going to be able to learn things we don't know now. I think that'll be great. But God has given us material that we are to know before we see him face to face. That's what his word is. He's given you everything he wants you to know about him before you meet him. When we have, uh, when we have guest speakers come to our, to our church, uh, we will, if, uh, we're, we're having one at our, at our global focus, and we'll, we'll call and we'll get some information about him that we can share with our, our church family prior to his arrival. Because when he comes, I want you to know a little bit about him. That's what God did in his word. He's given you material so that you can, you can know some things about him before you meet him face to face. This is a message revealed, but it's also a message relayed. Relayed. Paul said he's going to do this. He's going to God is manifesting his word in Paul's day and even today. He's doing that through preaching. Through preaching. 
That describes that word. You probably you probably know this. This is a Wednesday crowd. Uh, you're good note takers and you're good listeners, and you just are. You know that that word preaching is the same word that they used in, in Paul's day to describe what a herald does from a, a town council or the king. He would send out a herald, and what he did was the same word we have for preaching. He would shout out the message that was not his, but from his master, from his king or from the town elders, and he heralded that message. That's what preaching is. Preaching is not to be the message of the preacher. Preaching is to be the message of God communicated through him. That's what's supposed to be going on. It's a message relayed. And the task of preaching, Paul said this, it was committed to him. Did you notice that in verse 3? He said that God is doing this through preaching, which is committed unto me. That word committed is interesting. It's something that was given to him as a trust. It was entrusted to him. And so the thought is there that preaching was not only a call to Paul, but it was a stewardship. It was given to him as a servant of God, as an apostle of Christ. He was under the commandment of God our Savior to preach. And that calling was given to him. Preaching was a task that Paul faithfully and seriously executed. This is a big deal to him. In the last chapter of the last book that God would use him to write... He told young Timothy, preach the word. I mean, Paul knew it was coming, his end was coming. And this was important for him to communicate to Timothy later on. Preach the word. Preaching was important to Paul. It's important to the church. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think this was in his book, Preachers and Preaching. I don't know if that's true or not. But he said this, the preacher must be a serious man. He must never give the impression that preaching is something light or superficial or trivial. I have been in churches once, then I don't go back. I have been in churches where the preaching in that church was about as deep as a frisbee. That's a waste of my time. It just is. It's a waste of your time. Now, they'll sing to me for half an hour, 45 minutes. But when it comes to the ministry of the word, it just keeps getting shallower and shallower. It's unfortunate and tragic that so many so-called churches have cheapened the preaching of God's word and they make it less than the center of what that church is to be about. I want you to know something. If you're considering Faith Baptist Church, you haven't joined here yet, Preaching and the teaching of the word will always be the focal point of Faith Baptist Church. It's the ministry of the word. I, I've, told you, I've told you this before. I, I love our pulpit. I hate moving it. But I love this pulpit because it doesn't matter which door you walk in. Your attention comes right here. There's just something about this pulpit. That's right. That, that is right. The, the word of God ought to be the focal point of a church. I'm not against programs and I'm not against activities. We had a good fellowship the other night with the teenagers back there in the back. Played some dumb games but had some good food. We're going, uh, Terry and I are going laser tag with them in a couple weeks. Pray for Mark and Terry. I was a youth pastor for a long time, but that was a long time ago too. But we had a great time of fellowship together. I am not against activities and programs. But never let them replace the centrality of the ministry of the word. You remember our study on the deacons? The purpose of the deacon was so that the pastor can give himself to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is, where, this is what it's about. Those things are, are, are what it's supposed to be. There's a mega church down in Atlanta, and I was on their website today. I go there. If, if ever I start feeling like my blood pressure is getting too low, I have certain church websites I'll go to, and it'll just rile me up. And I was back on this one today reading more about it and some of the controversy that has surrounded it recently. Uh, well, I say recently, within the last year or so. 
but they always have something controversial going on. Last fall, it was their, um, their wishy-washy endorsement of homosexuality and trying to make it sound like love is okay. Love is what is the determining factor if a man should marry a man or a woman should marry a woman. But on this church's website, it says that their goal is to be a church that is loved by the unchurched. That drives what they do. They want to be a church that is loved by the unchurched. And I'll say this, and if I have to explain it later, I will. The church is not for lost people. Nothing in scripture indicates that a church service like this is for the unsaved. It's not. Paul goes so far as to say this. If by chance a person who is not saved happens to come to your church service, let them see Christ. The main, the main focus of the church, the, the church service, ought to be pointed toward believers. When you and I are out in the community, that's where we lead people to Christ. We are to go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come. The church is for, is for saved people. So what in the world would a pastor be saying that the main goal of our church is to be a church that's loved by the unchurched? Well, what they do is they will open their Mother's Day service with a song sung by Shania Twain, a country singer who dresses like a tramp and sings songs that go right according to that philosophy. And that's how they opened their Mother's Day, sermon, uh, their Mother's Day service and 30,000 people came. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, we've got to stay true to the word of God. Paul said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do for my master and in my ministry. I'm going to do it by the preaching of the word. Preaching of the word. So let's, we've got to wrap this up, don't we? The apostle Paul, that's who I'm introducing you to tonight. I want you to see where he's at, where he's coming from, what motivates him, what drives him. Now, are you with me on Paul now? I'm... We're meeting the, the, the author tonight. You with me on where Paul's at? What's important to him? Where his passion lies? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 1. Be followers of me even as I am also of Christ. I'm saying Paul's passion, we ought to follow him in that. Paul's commitment and his, his, uh, his, his subjection to his master, we ought to emulate Paul in that. Follow me as I follow Christ, he said. Paul was a servant, a slave of God. He was an apostle, one sent to tell others about Christ. He was committed to building up brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging them in their walk with the Lord. And he was committed to the word of God. And now he says, follow, be ye followers of me, even as I also am followers of Christ. What, what does my life and what does your life look like compared to Paul in these things? That's what I want you to take away tonight. I just don't want to introduce you to Paul. I want to encourage you to be like Paul. Be like him. He's not a super Christian. He's a surrendered Christian. Paul could have made a million dollars doing what he was doing. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were some of the wealthiest people in the Jewish community. Paul could have been wealthy, but he surrendered. Paul could have had prestige as a Jewish, uh, as a Jewish leader and a teacher of the law. He could have been a distinguished professor at the local Hebrew University. His books could have been written to, to go to the world and still be studied today like Plato is. But he was surrendered. Everything about Paul was given over to God. I remember when I was a, when I was a teenager, Pastor Cross, uh, who used to pastor here, was my pastor, and he used to use this illustration. He said here, and this is what he told us as teenagers. He said, here's what you need to do, young people. And I've come to find out this is good for old people too. He said, you need to take the check that is your life and sign it at the bottom and don't fill out anything else and hand God a blank check of your life and say, God, 
fill it out however you want. Wouldn't you love it if somebody walked up to you and said, look, I got $50 billion in the bank. I'm going to give you a check. It's already signed. Whatever you want, just put that down. Wouldn't you like that? That'd work out, wouldn't it? That's exactly what I ought to do with my life. God, here's my check. Now, my ambitions, those get set aside. My plans, what I want to be when I grow up or what I want to be when I'm 40 or when I'm 50 or when I'm 60, those get set aside. What I'm going to do in my retirement, that gets set aside because I am a servant of God. I'm a slave to God. I don't tell, the, I don't tell God what I'm going to do. He's the master. I'm the slave. You know, what, you know what Paul found out, though? He's the best master in the world, and that master did more for him than he would have ever been able to do for himself. And I want to invite you tonight. Keep Paul in mind. When we go through this book, we're going to look at, we're going to look at mostly at behavior. That's the emphasis of the book. But keep in mind, Paul, Paul wrote this book, and Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's, let's be like Paul, because in doing so, we're going to be like Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his passion for your, uh, for your work, his passion for you. Lord, he, he did what he did. He said the love of Christ was compelling him to do all these things. Uh, he loved you. He was in love with you. And Lord, sometimes I just wonder if my love is like that for you. And I pray for young people in here and old people in here and everybody in between that we would follow Paul's example as he followed Christ. Help our surrender to be complete. Help our goal to be to lift up those around us. It's easy to tear people down. Help us to lift them up in Christ and encourage them to be better than they are. And Lord, help us to be committed to your word and it's, it's work in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Can't wait to see you. Hopefully soon and one day face to face, we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a good night. Lord willing, we'll see you on the weekend.